sorry, this, I'm starting with a long quote. I don't know what that means. Did you start it? Yeah, it started. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to have such a large, full room with us today. (laughs) Just kidding. It's not that full, but we're glad that you're here. Um, Let's pray, and we'll jump right into it. Uh, Lord, the the uh, I know that the words that we're about to to read and the things that we're going to talk about are weighty and powerful. Um, so I pray that as we talk about them, we would remember their weight um, and that in our hearts, uh, as we believe and seek to, to live them out, um, that they would not just be empty words, but that they would be um, our very life, our very hope, um, and the energy that like really sustains and drives our faith um, in you. And I pray over all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is... Um, as you know, the second part of, of last week. Uh, last week, we talked about the, like, why the resurrection is true, why we believe the resurrection. Um, and the main point that I had was uh, it's, it's most reasonable for us to conclude that the resurrection actually happened, and that Jesus actually rose on the dead, from the dead based on the fact that um, he was crucified and buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, that his tomb was later found empty, that many people experienced some sort of appearance of him after he died, um, and then that the disciples in early church believed and preached that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Um, and my argument was we've got good reason to believe that those four things happened, and there's a broad variety of interpretations that one could have to explain those. What's the best one, though, that actually captures all of it and makes sense of it? It's the resurrection. Um, you just have to start with, or with the potential that there is a God who exists and that he actually interacts with the world and causes supernatural things to happen. If you're willing to allow that possibility, then it's the most reasonable conclusion to come to. This week is going to be a bit different. Um, We're going to talk about the resurrection more from a doctrinal perspective. Um, So the two questions that I'm hoping to answer and talk with you about are, why does the resurrection matter? And then what does the resurrection mean? So distinguishing, like, why is it important, um, like, just on its own, and then what are the implications of the resurrection? Obviously, that kind of feeds itself. It's important because of the implications, and the implications are there because it matters. But we'll start with kind of an overarching why it matters first. Um, before I we, we jump into that, though, I did want to kind of transition the discussion a little bit with a, a pretty long quote. Um, so I'm going to need you to bear with me. But this is from William Lane Craig, so the, the, one of the ones that I was really leaning on last week for last week's discussion. Um, and I want to start with this because I think it wraps up last week's conversation well by helping us understand what role the evidence for the resurrection ought to play in our own faith and also in our witness. Um, it puts it in its correct place. Um, and then it, this also starts, starts gets our um, thoughts going about why the, the resurrection matters. So it's, it's a good connection between the two. So um, the quote starts with, um, in considering the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, it is important to avoid giving the impression that the Christian faith is based on the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. The Christian faith is based on the event of the resurrection. It is not based on the evidence for the resurrection. This distinction is crucial. The Christian faith stands or falls on the event of the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christianity is a myth. We may as well forget it. But the Christian faith does not stand or fall on the evidence for the resurrection. There are many real events in history for which the historical evidence is slim or non-existent. In fact, when you think about it, most events in history are of this character. But they did actually happen. We just have no way of proving that they happened. Thus, it is entirely conceivable that the resurrection of Jesus was a real event of history, but there's no way of proving this historically. And I think that, in fact, the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection is good, remarkably good. But this evidence is not the basis for the Christian faith. Should the evidence be refuted somehow, the Christian faith would not necessarily be refuted. It would only mean that one could not prove historically that the Christian faith is true. In point of fact, we can know that Jesus rose from the dead wholly apart from a consideration of the historical evidence. The simplest Christian who has neither the opportunity nor the wherewithal to conduct a historical investigation of Jesus' resurrection, 
can know with assurance that Jesus is risen because God's Spirit bears unmistakable witness to him that it is so. Any non-Christian who is truly seeking to know the truth about God and life can also be sure that Jesus is risen because God's Spirit will lead him to a personal relationship with the risen Lord. Thus, there are really two avenues to a knowledge of the fact of the resurrection. The avenue of the Spirit, and then the avenue of historical inquiry. The former requires a spiritual certainty of the resurrection, whereas the latter requires a rational certainty of the resurrection. And ideally, these ought to coincide, the Spirit working through the rational power of the evidence, and the evidence undergirding the witness of the Spirit. But even if the historical avenue proved inaccessible, the avenue of the Spirit to a knowledge of the resurrection would remain opened and independent. If the evidence of the resurrection is inadequate, then we cannot prove the resurrection to be an event of history. But God's Spirit still furnishes the unmistakable conviction about that the resurrection occurred and that Jesus lives today. Therefore, whatever the state of the evidence, we can be sure that the resurrection is an event of history. Ultimately, then, we must come to grips with not the historical evidence, important as this may be, but with the living Lord himself. And I read that um, this week in preparing for today's lesson. And at first I was kind of like, well, that's, like, that's old news. Like we just talked about that last week. That doesn't quite show you like why the resurrection matters. But I thought it would be helpful to start with that because it puts in place how we have to think about the historical evidence as undergirding our faith, as, as important. And like we have it at our, at our fingertips, so we might as well use it. But it's not the basis. Um, so then as we're, as we're talking with unbelievers, um, if, if they really care about the historical evidence, we're welcome to lead with that and talk with them about it. But we don't want to give the impression that just because the historical evidence is there, that they should believe it. Like there are other factors as well. And we could lay out that, the, the I think, pretty airtight case for the historical resurrection, um, and they still may not believe it if the Spirit doesn't work. Um, so that, that puts us um, in a place of needing to depend upon the Spirit um, in our evangelism and in our witness of the resurrection. And I also shared that because uh, actually a couple weeks ago I was talking with Landon Thompson about um, preparing to teach about why the resurrection happened. And he said, he brought up the question, well, what if someone came and said they found the bones of Jesus and like they could prove that it was the bones of Jesus somehow? Like, would that mean that the resurrection didn't happen and we should just like drop it all? Uh, I thought that was a a pretty thought-provoking question. And I think that it would require a little bit more thought, but just based off of what this article is saying, um, I think we need to be a little bit cautious of just saying, well, we need to throw it all out because someone came forth with historical evidence that the resurrection didn't happen. Because we don't just believe because of the, the evidence of the historical evidence. We believe because the Spirit has caused us to believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, that's kind of like you know asking the question, well, if you found a reindeer and a sled on top of your roof, does that mean you should believe that Santa Claus is real? I mean, kind of, but I guess probably never going to happen. We don't really think that there's going to be evidence that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But we don't, summarize, I don't want us, I don't want us to walk in a state of fear that um, our faith hangs by a thread and that all it would take to, to knock the tower down is for someone to come up with the bones of Jesus. It would be a lot more complicated than that. Um, and I think there's a reason why in our preaching and, and most of our teaching, uh, we, we talk about what the Bible says. We don't lead forth with a ton of historical evidence. It's not, um, that those, are, those are undergirding facts. Those are not the core of what we believe. Did that make sense? Were there any questions on that or any pushback on that either? I mean, the only thing I would say is if, if somehow, I mean, there was some 100% proof technology that said these were the bones of Jesus, mm. then I think that does blow up Christianity. Except I know that wouldn't. If somebody said that, I'm like, no, it's not. I, I would know right. that something's yeah. off, you know? Yeah. Right, so there's kind of that balance, I, I think. Um, because we can't do that with any historical evidence. Like we we can't get like these are the bones of Genghis Khan. Like how do we know? Like somebody had to have had his genetic data, and how do you have to, how do you get that? Like, you can't know with certainty. But I think it is good for us to at least have the spiritual and intellectual honesty that like if this is all a hoax and somebody can prove it to us, then like this is meaningless. That's what Paul says um, in Scripture. So we don't need to like hold fast to this if it's all false. Um, but 
we also don't need to freak out every time somebody comes forth with some new evidence that supposedly proves that the resurrection didn't happen. Is that clear? Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Sweet. All right. This is going to be the, we'll move on now to, to why does the resurrection matter? Um, I'd like this to be a little bit more discussion-based, so we're going to be reading quite a few texts, and I'd like to start with just asking you what you're seeing in the text. What do you see that it talks about in the resurrection? I've got what I see all listed out in bullet points, so I'll make sure we touch on all of it, but um, I'd like to hear what you're seeing first. Um, the, the, I started with saying the question I want to answer at the beginning is, like, why does the resurrection matter? And then we'll switch over to why the resurrect, what the resurrection means. So to answer the question of why the resurrection matters, we're going to start with 1 Corinthians 15. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn there. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. Actually, I apologize. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So the answer um, that I see in this text of why the, the resurrection matters, I think is pretty simple. It's that the resurrection is a part of the gospel, is a, a part of the core belief of Christianity. And I get that because Paul says, he's, he's saying, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And then in verse 3 he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. I think, it's, I think it's reasonable to, to take because of how he structures that, that what follows in verse 3 is a rephrasing. It's, it's the reminder of the gospel that he preached. And the resurrection of Christ is included in that. So as Christians, that is one of the core pieces of the doctrine that we believe, that we preach, and that we disciple others in. So that, that's in itself why it matters. It's in that doctrine. Um, and I think it's helpful for us to see that too, because it's not like it's some... Um, side, secondary doctrine that we want to make a big deal about um, or that was added later and then raised to a a level of prominence that it shouldn't have been. Um, From the get-go, this was a core, the core part of um, Christian doctrine and what we believe. It doesn't tell us why it matters in the sense of like what's important about it or how it affects our lives, but it at least tells us that it's a core part of what we believe. And because it's in that equation of the gospel, if you don't have a resurrection, you don't have a gospel. In the same way, like, if Christ didn't die, we don't have a gospel. If Christ never came, we don't have a gospel. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's part of that equation, and we need to have it. Without it, then our, um, we have no faith. We have no, have no gospel. <laughs> what does the resurrection mean? So we're gonna be, now we're going to be jumping around to quite a few different passages. We will be coming back to 1 Corinthians 15, but I actually would like to start with Romans 1, 1 through 6. And actually, Nathaniel, would you be willing to, to read that for us? Uh, Romans 1, 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Thanks, Daniel. Okay, so in those in those six verses, do you see anything that um, Paul uses the resurrection as an evidence for or an implication of? In verse four, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so what does that, uh, just phrasing a little bit different, what does that mean or what is that telling us? Basically that his, um, through his resurrection, that sort of authenticated the fact that he was a deity, that he was God, that hmm. he was who he said he was, did what he said he would do. Yeah, it, 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 taking these, this scripture for what it's saying, um, it tells us that we, we can look to the resurrection as the assurance and confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, I don't know if I, I often think that way, and I think there could be a temptation to look at, well, like he's the Son of God because he died for us, or he's the Son of God because he said he was, and he claimed to be multiple times, which is true, but, uh, you know, Anyone can claim to be the Son of God, and anyone can claim to die for people's sins. How do we know that he actually was the Son of God? It was because of his resurrection. Um, the resurrection is what gives us assurance that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and one that we um, ought to and can put our, our faith and trust in. Anyone see anything else in this passage about the resurrection before we move on? Regarding its implications or its importance? Uh, either one. <clears throat> I don't know which one are we on. Uh, implications, but if you see something about its importance, you're welcome to say that too. Oh. Okay, we'll move on. That, that was the, ma the main one I saw in this passage was the, the resurrection is, is evidence for Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, we're going to flip back a little bit to Acts 17. And we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 31. Todd, will you read that uh, for us? Yes. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Any thoughts on this passage or what it, what it has to say about the um, role of the resurrection in our faith or what the resurrection means? The resurrection is the assurance that a day is coming when God is going to judge the world. Hmm. Yeah. Jesus okay. is going to come back to judge the world and he can't come back to judge the world He's dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It's, he, he, he is the judge because he was risen from the dead. Um, but when I, when I was reading this passage, I was a little bit confused because it, so it, the way that it's phrased seems to indicate that um, the, the resurrection from the dead is the assurance that like not only is Jesus the judge, but there is going to be a judgment and that God has overlooked these times of ignorance. I was a little bit confused by that and like what that actually meant and like how, like how is it the assurance? Like how would you look at the resurrection and say, well, I'm going to be judged someday because Jesus rose from the dead. I'm not, I wasn't quite sure how you could get to that. Um, so I had to um, lean on some other resources to try to understand what Paul is saying here. And I, I think what, what I've, come to to understand it a bit better is um, there's this time of, of ignorance that, that God has overlooked, not meaning that he, like, he hasn't judged people for their sins, but uh, he hasn't really done anything in particular globally to address this, this ignorance that they have of him and that their unbelief. But he sent Jesus, and Jesus has died and risen again. And if you look at the cross, the cross is a sign of our salvation. It is a sign that God has rescued us from our sin, but it's also a sign that he cares about sin and that he will judge it and that he doesn't just overlook it in the sense that he ignores it and doesn't care about it, but he, he punishes it. Um, and it's either you will receive the punishment on your own or you will receive it 
in Christ. Um, and so the, the resurrection and, me, and then um, him rising, Jesus, raising Jesus from the dead is, is our assurance that Christ is the Son of God and that that was a, a, a sacrifice acceptable to God. But it also then gives us the, the reason to believe that he's coming back to judge um, and he, he will judge the world in righteousness. Um, and it also means that uh, this death and resurrection uh, needs to be preached to everyone. Um, if, if God is overlooking the time of ignorance and we're now in a time where everyone knows and will know that they will be judged, this needs to be preached. Um, they need to know that, that Christ has died for their sins and that he has risen and that there will come a day where he will come in power to judge. Um, and that's part of why. So this, I didn't give the context before reading it, but this is Paul addressing um, Athens and people in Athens. And this is part of why this is in his address. This is part of why he's, he's preaching it to them. Um, it's not just that Christ has come and died, but that he has come and risen and that he's coming back. Does that, does that seem clear? I, I'm still wrestling with a little bit of like understanding exactly what this passage means uh, and like understanding the why. I think I can take it for face value what it's saying. Understanding why it's that way was a little bit confusing to me. But are any questions on that? Now we can move on. All right. Now we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 15. And this one's a, we're going to read, I believe if I'm not mistaken, the entire chapter. So it's going to be a little bit longer. Um, but this entire um, 60 verses, 58 verses, yeah, 58 verses is about the resurrection. So, there's going to be, I have quite a few bullet points under this one. I think there's going to be a lot. Um, just to split up the reading a bit. Uh, Marsha, would you read verses 1 through 11? Um, and then Michael, would you read verses 12 through 34? And then I'll read the rest. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in me. For I have delivered for I deliver to you as of first importance what I have to receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to, to then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living thing. The last man, Adam, became a living give the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man from the earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the works of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Since this is um, a bit of a longer passage, uh, we'll break it up just a little bit, just so we've got um, sections. So you should have, I think we all have the same headings. Um, so I'm going to start with just verses 1 through um, 34, actually. So those, those first two sections, what do we see that it teaches us about the resurrection and what it means for us as Christians? Or its, its level of impact, importance, meaning. <clears throat> says in verse 3 that it's, he delivered it as of first importance. So, number one thing to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. He died according to the scriptures, was raised, and uh, appeared to everyone. So, 
Yep. So it's it's included in the list of things that are of first importance for us as Christians. I mean, the most probably the most obvious one when when we think about the resurrection. I think most Christians think of 1 Corinthians 15 and how if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're still in our sins. Mm-hmm. It's We often as Christians talk about the death of Jesus for our sins, and we often fail to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But it's in his resurrection that we see that his, he has been proven to be the Son of God. Mm-hmm. That it's been proven that he conquered sin and death. Like, the proof that he conquered sin and death is that he's alive. Mm-hmm. If he died on the cross claiming to die for our sins, but then never rose, there is no assurance, no proof mm-hmm. that he actually did what he said he did, which mm-hmm. is to die and to conquer sin and death. So his, his resurrection is like... Uh, it's a proof that God has accepted his atoning sacrifice for sin. Mm-hmm. So without that, we're toast. Yeah. Like, we, we're still in our sins. Everybody who's died is still dead. There's no hope. Mm. Um, and it's interesting that Paul says that Christians are most of all to be pitied. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason for that doesn't come until later in the chapter when he says, I die every day. Mm. He's, he's like, what am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, why go through all the affliction, all the suffering in serving Jesus, mm-hmm. in proclaiming the gospel? If this is, if all, this is all a, yeah. a myth, a joke, mm-hmm. like, you should pity us, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so the, re- the, the, the greatest importance and implication is, is without the resurrection, there is no... Salvation. In fact, the gospel is incomplete, like you mentioned already. If we only talk about the cross and we leave off the resurrection, we have a, a truncated gospel. Yeah. I mean, I just think, I'm not sure if it all came out of this section, but I mean, Jesus said that was part of his message was that was going to happen. So mm. it sort of invalidates yeah. everything if he doesn't follow through with what he said. I mean, because like you said, anyone could, you know, I can say I'm going to die for everyone's sins, but once I'm dead, right? what's the, what's the validation? You know? Yeah, absolutely. That's 100% <clears throat> true. I, are you going to talk about Romans 4? I don't think I was. So, go ahead. So Romans 4 is a very, has a very interesting verse about the resurrection. It talks about how... Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then, uh, at the very end of the chapter, uh, in the last couple verses, it says, But the words that it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted, that is, the righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now listen to verse 25. Who was delivered up, that's the cross, who was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins, and raised for our justification. It's a really interesting verse. It's not normally how we talk. Like, we don't talk about how Jesus was raised for our justification. But it gets back to the fact that it's in his resurrection that it's our sins have been forgiven. God has accepted his atoning sacrifice and... This exchange has happened where his righteousness is now credited to our account. Mm-hmm. The resurrection is proof of that. Mm-hmm. He was raised for that purpose, mm-hmm. so that in him we might be justified. Which is a, it's an incredible thought um, as it relates to the resurrection. Anyway, sorry. No, I, 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 that was something I, w- I wasn't going to Romans 4, but that was something I was wanting to touch on a little bit. Because I, I think there is a... I can at least confess in my own heart and the way that I think about it, a um, improper imbalance given to, you know, Jesus died for my sins, Jesus died for my sins, but it's like he also was was resurrected for our sins. And we want to talk about that and think about that properly because we obviously want to be right in our doctrine and we want to make sure we're being faithful to Scripture. But um, 
I think I, I wonder if there are ways in which we deprive ourselves of some measure of comfort and assurance by just focusing on he died, he died, he died. But it's not just that he died, it's that he died and he rose. And our confidence doesn't come just from the fact that you know he's, he died for me and he, it, it's covered, but also like he's, he's alive. Um, and the reason why I can be confident that his death was sufficient um, is not just, it's not because he died alone, but because that he's, he is now living um, and alive. Um, it's the proof of his victory. Mm-hmm. Like that's the Romans one hmm. bit. Yeah. It's the proof of it's the proof of his victory. It's the proof that he is the Son of God. Yeah. It's the proof that what he did worked. Hmm. So yeah, we do rob ourselves of some assurance because we can talk about how Jesus died for our sins, right? Yep. But it's the resurrection that proves he was victorious. Mm-hmm. And that we can have that victory through through him. That's our text today. Which you're at is, is hopefully that will be clear today. Oh my goodness. I I I, I feel confident that it will be. Okay, so have you all you all read or watched Narnia, uh, like the line, the witch and the wardrobe? Ooh, are you about to, are you going to bring that up in the sermon? No. Okay. no okay. <laughs> Great story. I just love Narnia. It's it's a it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I was thinking about, I didn't really, I think, make this connection in my own head watching it before, but like, w- just think about this. What kind of story would Narnia be if Aslan you know, goes to the stone table, he's killed, and doesn't wake up? Like, they go and fight the White Witch. In the and, movie? Yeah, in, or in the book. Yeah. What, well, like, what happens if he doesn't That'd be it. That'd be, there'd be no defeat. Yeah, like, the White Witch would kill them. Yeah. Um... And I think what is really beautiful about the resurrection is that, or at least we will go with Aslan's resurrection in this case, um, it's not just, it would have been pretty amazing in its own right if he had gone to the stone table for Edmund and he died for Edmund. Now Edmund doesn't have to bear the weight of the, of the deep magic. He doesn't have to bear that curse and the punishment. But he's still in big trouble because the White Witch is still coming after him. Um, and all of, all of the children... And so what's beautiful is not only does Aslan take Edmund's punishment, but then he wakes up, resurrected, and goes out and he defeats the White Witch. He actually conquers death. He conquers evil um, and rescues them. Like it wasn't, uh, I think that's one of the pretty cool parts about the movie is um, Peter has to come to grips with the fact that like, he didn't defeat the White Witch. Um, Aslan did. And that actually comes up in the, the next movie, uh, Prince Caspian, because like, he has to be reminded again like you didn't defeat her like Aslan did and it was through his power that you had victory that story is a reflection of the, the real story so bringing it back to the real story of Jesus um, the resurrection is packed with meaning uh, one of those being it validates the victory of the cross so that the cross was sufficient and covering the taking him taking the wrath that we deserved um, on our behalf um, but then his resurrection also it in itself is the is the victory over sin and over death. So now we don't just stand here, our sins are forgiven, but we're still left to the wolves of sin and death. It's our sin is forgiven, and we now can um, conquer uh, through Jesus Christ the sin in our own hearts. Um, and one day we we may die, but we will not succumb to death for eternity. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about it. It's like, you know, it's one, if, if our sin is forgiven, that's great. Like, what's to keep us from sinning again? What's to keep us from going, like, finding ourselves back in the jail cell on death row, deserving death again? That's Jesus' resurrection. It's not, it, we, we, um, our sin is forgiven, and we are, through him, kept from deserving further punishment and, and forever living under the rule and reign of sin that's and of death. Six. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'll be quiet then. That's great. That's great. Teacher's pet. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of the teacher's teacher, so. I don't <laughs> That's right. Um, doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Fair. Um, anything, anything else from that, that first section? Oh, in terms of? Implications of the resurrection, from the resurrection. Well, we were... T- we were talking about we, without mentioning the verse. Yep. You're already talking about verse 24. <coughs> uh, Jesus is currently reigning over every rule, authority, mm. and power. We're going to see that in our text today. Yeah. 
that that is the that's another connection, hmm. right? Like, so he's talking about it here. Yeah. He talks about it in Romans six. He talks about it in Ephesians one. Hmm. Um, Jesus has risen hmm. and been exalted, enthroned in heaven over all evil, all of it, sin, death, the devil, every every enemy. So that I, I see that here in this in this middle portion, um, yeah, and then obviously there's also but we're gonna get to that in the latter part of the chapter. But he's already nibbling at the fact that like his resurrection means our resurrection. Hmm. I mean he expands that sure. in much greater detail at the end, but yep. he already says Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be raised because he was raised. Hmm. And then he obviously he's going to unpack that later. Yeah. So a, a phrase we use a lot as Christians is like the already, not yet. Um, things that are have already happened and also they have not yet happened. I, I think you can see that pretty clearly um, in, in that middle section that Michael was referring to, like verses 23 through 28. Um, because in, in verse 26, it says, or 27, excuse me, that God has put everything in subjection under Jesus. But in verses 24 through 26, we also see that like Jesus is progressively destroying every rule and authority and power, um, and he will reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be defeated is death. And so it's like he, he has, through the resurrection, we have assurance that he already has had everything placed in subjection under him, and also he will conquer everything and rule and reign. Um, and present, um, delivers the kingdom to, to God the Father. So the, the resurrection provides confidence and assurance of Jesus' reign over everything. Because if he's conquered sin and death, like there's nothing left. Like He's already created everything else. He's, he's over everything through the resurrection. Um, and, uh, as Michael also said, that the resurrection accomplishes our future resurrection. So I think the first verse that mentions it here is, Um, Verse 21, so for as uh, by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. Um, And and actually this is kind of Paul's whole whole argument because the people in Corinth are arguing that there is no resurrection of the dead for us. That we'll reach the end and we just die. Um, It was a very foreign concept uh, in Greek thought to think that you could live again after death. It's just, it's over. You, you die and you're done. And Paul's saying, no, like, that can't be because if, if we don't rise from the dead, then that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the, rise from the dead, then our whole faith is in vain. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then our faith is validated and we also will be raised. So it's like those two pieces, um, Paul almost kind of comes in assuming like you can't have one without the other. And that's how what he's building his argument off of. Um, so it gives us confidence that, that we will be resurrected and then somewhat of a, um, I found, challenging section to understand, verse 35 through 49, Paul starts to get into like what type of, of body are we going to have or what is this resurrection going to look like? Because it is a reasonable objection to be like, well, what do you mean we're going to be resurrected from the dead? Especially if you think about people that have, like, their body is fully decomposed, they're just bones. Like, are you saying that the flesh is going to reform and they're going to have a new body? Like, what, what does that look like? Um, Paul, um, always the, the kind one, says, you, you foolish person to that question. He doesn't even really, doesn't seem to think very much of it. And yet he still kind of answers the question to a degree uh, by shifting it and saying that we're going to have a different type of body uh, when he rise from the dead. Um, my understanding is when he's saying, you know, the natural body and the spiritual body, he's not saying physical and spiritual. Um, so he's not saying we're not going to have a physical body or making a dichotomy there because we believe Jesus was risen physically. He wasn't just risen spiritually. So I don't think it's the, like the, he's not talking about the physical matter of the body, but like the nature and type of it, the, or even the quality of it, what it, what it was made for. And you can kind of see that because he's saying, um, hang on, I'm, I lost the verse. Oh, I think it's, it's verse 48. It's like, as was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so... Nope, that's not what I was. Okay, I lost the verse. I apologize. But you can kind of see he's, he's, he's 
connecting the natural body with it's made for earth. Um, it's made for this, this world. And the spiritual body, it's, it's made for heaven. It's made for another world. So the implications I take from that section, verses 35 through 49, is that Jesus' resurrection purchased for us, purchases for us a new spiritual body, um, which is better than the body that we currently have. As much as the body that we have is good, and at creation God said it was good, we do know that our bodies decay, they grow old, um, they're imperfect because of the fall. We're going to be given a new body that's fit for the new world, <coughs> which is yet another implication of the resurrection, because if you look at verse 50, it's, it, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So if we follow Paul's logic, that means that Christ's resurrection allows us to have a spiritual body, which means we are now capable of inheriting the kingdom of heaven and entering into the kingdom of heaven. If like, our current perishable bodies cannot, I don't know if he's necessarily saying cannot exist in heaven or like cannot be there, but like, it's not fit for heaven. We've been given a new body so that we can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Um, he really is our like, key to the kingdom. It's how we get there. It's, it's through his resurrection. Um, otherwise, we, we can't. Um, we cannot inherit it. Obviously, I don't understand how the physics of that work, and I don't think Paul is trying to explain the physics or the physicality of how that works. It's just this, this, he's, he's explaining it. Um, he's telling us that it is, it is the way it is, <laughs> which I think is, is part of why he says that's a foolish question. Like We're talking about spiritual, supernatural things. We're not going to be able to explain it in purely natural terms. Not that that's entirely a bad endeavor, but it's, it's not going to be a particularly fruitful one. I need to get running in a second, but sure. I, I just wanted to say, like, I, I just feel like, you know, Paul is, to me, the, Paul is the anchor for me of why I just feel so confident in hmm. my faith. I mean, you know, all the um, all of his disciples lived with Jesus, heard his teaching, so and it was all amazing teaching and even miracles and hmm. all of that. But I mean, Paul was completely opposed to all of this, and the, the resurrection. The sight of the resurrected Jesus mm. was what completely changed his life, and and then he he's so self aware about like I'm doing all this and I'm suffering mm. repeatedly. Like why why would I do that? Well, because I cannot deny what I know, what I saw, you know. So um, that's to me that's just super encouraging. It's like you know, there's days you doubt or you wonder or whatever, mm. and it's like you, you just go back to that. I mean, no one would have put themselves through this. If it wasn't true, I mean, and even mm-hmm. all the, you know, obviously all the apostles who, who were martyred, I mean, obviously, but just Paul to me just always anchors it all. You know, mm-hmm. what he does. Well, that's exactly where he ends. He ends this whole discussion of the resurrection by saying, "My labor in the Lord is not in vain," mm-hmm. precisely because Christ has been raised. <clears throat> like the idea of vanity is a theme that runs beginning to end in First Corinthians fifteen. Mm-hmm. He starts off talking about unless you believed in vain, and then he ends hmm. by saying, uh, "Our labor is not in vain." Hmm. Which is so. All that to say, Amen and yes and hallelujah to what you're saying. Amen. Are you gonna? Can, can I make a comment on verse fifty-five and fifty-six? Sure. Yeah. Are you, right. gonna, you go first. No, no, you, you good. That's good. You sure? Yeah. One thing that I learned uh, in school, I didn't come up with this myself, but um, in looking at the text, one thing that's been really helpful for me in understanding how this works. So it says, like when we're raised, right? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your, what does it say? Sting. Sting. The what? Sting. Of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So, that's confusing. Yep. Like, if you think about sting is a verb, right? Are you with me? Yep. But the word in Greek is not a verb. It's a noun. So it should read something like this. It should read, Hmm. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your stinger? Hmm. The stinger of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. 
why is this the stinger of death is sin sin is the stinger mm. because sin is what leads you to death mm. that makes sense mm. right yep and he can ask hey where's your stinger death because it's been conquered it's mm. been conquered mm. so you can imagine like I when I preach this I had a little picture of a bee's behind with the stinger yeah and then like it being broken off huh if the stinger is broken, it can't sting you it can't anymore. Sting anymore. There's hmm. no sting anymore, right? Then the question is, how in the world is the law the power of sin? Hmm. It says the power of sin is the law. Like that doesn't make sense hmm. unless you think like, oh wait, how does how does this, how does how does sin condemn us? Hmm. Right. With the law by showing hmm. we've broken the law, hmm. right? So, the, the power of sin is to come and say, he's personifying it here, hmm. saying like sin comes and says, see, see, he's broken the law, he's broken the law, you have to condemn him. Hmm. But Jesus says, no, I've paid that, hmm. I've had victory over that. It takes hmm. away his, it's the same reason why in Colossians 2, Paul says that we triumph over Satan. Hmm. These, these spiritual forces of evil because Satan's only power against us is accusation. Hmm. He can come before the Lord and say, see, he's he sinned. Hmm. But Jesus steps in and says, no, I paid for that. So like Romans 8, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? No one. No one. Hmm. Well, Satan, but it won't stick because hmm. Jesus is like, no, I've... He's got to justify us. Yeah, I've paid for that. It's it's paid in full. Super awesome. Fact. Super, super good. Anyway, so I have a little note in my Bible. I put stinger there because... It's actually a noun. It's a noun, and it makes more sense to see it that way. I'm not sure why they didn't translate it that way. But sting is a noun. I mean, that's a noun right there. A sting? Yeah. It's like a feeling. A thing? It's a, it, yeah, like... A, Person, place, you know, thing, idea. Idea, it's a feeling. okay. Sure. It's a sting. Okay. You feel the sting. Because you brought it up, I did want to just briefly read. So, what you yeah. quoted Romans eight. Yeah. Um, you said, you know, Paul says, "Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, uh, who indeed is interceding for us." So you also see there the interplay of like it's, it's he died and more than that he was raised. You have to have both. They need to be connected. And both of those combined are what give us the victory over sin. Um, and I guess in this, in this sense, in a way, it's also victory over the law. Like we are no longer chained to the demands of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, then sin has no power over us, um, which is something that Paul talks about extensively um, in Romans in particular. Um... We've got just a few minutes left. Um, I am not going to talk about Ephesians because I will leave that to Michael and he's preaching on that oh, today. Um, the passage... Uh, so I did just want to at least briefly mention, which I think we, we've talked about already, but um, one of the implications of the resurrection, or at least the power that the resurrection has in our life, is that the resurrection is the grounds and initiator of our new sanctified life. Um, I'm getting this uh, from Romans 6 and then from Colossians 2. Um, and in both of those passages, um, in fact, I think I can probably show you more clearly in Colossians 2. Um, hang on, one moment. 2 through 3, excuse me, 2 and 3. So, like, for example, in Colossians 3, Paul says... If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Um, and in verse, in chapter 2, I'm not seeing it. I apologize. My notes were not detailed as they could have been. Um, but so Paul's, he does similar things in Romans 6. What Paul is doing in those passages is he's grounding our need to pursue sanctification um, in the work of Christ and in particularly in his resurrection. Because you've been raised with him, you've been brought into new life. Now you need to seek the things that are above. You've been set free from sin. Um, you are no longer under the law. And so he's given you 
new life, not just in the sense that you know, you're going to have eternal life, but also the fact sense that um, sin is death. Sin is a living death. To walk in sin and to live in sin is to live dead. Um, and because of the cross, and then in, in particular because of the resurrection, uh, we have now been given the ability to, to walk in this life before our coming resurrection in newness, in holiness, and in righteousness. The resurrection is the grounds for that. It's the reason why we're called to pursue that. Like we haven't just died with Christ. We've also been raised with him to new life. And it's the power. Um, it's, the, it's, the, it's the how. It's the why we can accomplish it because of his resurrection. So we do it because of his resurrection, because of his resurrection and by his resurrection. We pursue sanctification and holiness. So those were some of the some of the implications that I, I saw in Scripture. I know there are more of the resurrection. Um, it's huge. It's powerful. Um, I really think I, at least personally, would like to start placing more emphasis on Easter and just like leading up to the importance of Easter. I have a little bit of a bone to pick with Christmas, but I'm not going to. Um, but like, I just know it's 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 easy to forget that the, the whole reason why the Christian faith matters and why we're here at the end of the day, it's because of the resurrection. Everything else is important. Everything else matters. But you don't have any of that if you don't have a resurrection. Um, we don't. Um, one other brief note before I, I'd like to close with a proper response to the resurrection. Um, you mentioned the um, if Christ had not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Um, I just want to share, I, I, um, when I think about that verse, it's definitely, I find that pretty convicting. Because it, I look at my life and I wonder, could that be said of me? Because what basic what Paul's saying is, uh, if, if Christ has not been raised, I have lived in such a way that the only way to make sense of my life, um, and the only way that my wife ma- my life matters, is if Christ has been raised. I don't know if I live that way. Uh, I'm sure there are ways in which I don't. Uh, and I, I also am pretty sure that Paul didn't live that way all the time, and he's not saying he's perfect. But um, I personally want to strive to live in such a way that. Um, I look pretty dumb if Christ isn't raised, and also that um, I wasted my life. Because the, the, the converse is, if he is raised from the dead, then I had spent my life on everything that matters, um, on the things that mattered most. Um, so I, hopefully it's, for me, I find that both a conviction and an encouragement to strive for greater dependence upon the resurrection in all that I do. To close, um, this has already been mentioned, but I think it's it's worth mentioning again um, and highlighting how Paul closes 1 Corinthians 15. Um, he's given this whole argument for why the resurrection matters and why the resurrection exists. Um, and how does he close it? He closes it in verse 58, saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So while the, there's um, a lot of implications of the resurrection, the resurrection stabilizes and secures our faith. Um, and there's a lot of internal things that I think the resurrection does for us, like providing joy and comfort and peace. Um, there is also a sense in which our response to the resurrection then is to uh, remain steadfast, uh, remain immovable in our faith, and not also what the Lord has called us to do, abounding in the good works of the Lord because it's not in vain. Uh, because we know that... Um, our works are supported by, uh, enabled by the resurrection, and because at the end of the day, when Christ returns, because of the resurrection and because he is returning, um, those works will matter. Um, those, those works will be vindicated. Um, yeah. So the, the resurrection is, is a comfort, and it's also a um, push towards resiliency and action and faithfulness as Christians. Um, any, any final thoughts or questions um, before, I, before I close this in prayer? All right. Let's pray. Jesus, we have a great hope uh, in you. Um, you've given us everything we need uh, in your death and resurrection um, through the Holy Spirit. Um, 
Please help us to believe that. Um, please help us to, to hold fast to it, um, to, to stake our lives on it. Uh, please give us wisdom on how we can abound in the work that you've given us, um, how we can be faithful with what you, you have for us, um, and then give us the diligence um, and resilience to stick with it and be faithful, abounding in good work. Um, but I also just ask that as we look back at your resurrection, please give us hope um, and greater hope and desire for your return um, when we will receive our heavenly bodies and we will be with you for eternity. Uh, it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Such a great topic. Probably could have had another week on this. I think we, we definitely could have.